Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. No, this is not the fifth cup. Um, We're not extending the sermon series. I just want to elaborate a little bit further. Last week we talked about the fourth cup, which is the cup of praise, um, which is, as the Jews call it, the Hillel. And um, the Hillel means uh, to praise. Hillel is praise. Hallelujah is where we get the word. Uh, Hillel is right in the middle of that. And, And basically the fourth cup is the promise of God that you and I can live a life of praise. And so last week I talked a little bit um, about this from Psalm 95, uh, looked at um, the cup of praise, but we also looked at some things that maybe stop us from entering into the cup of praise, primarily um, if we are naturally surfers. There's some things that will stop us. If we're naturally drifters, there's some things that will stop us. If we're naturally navigators, there's some things that will stop us. And then if we are naturally um, drowners, yeah. Yeah, we had a few. We have a few drowners, um, professional drowners. So uh, if that applies to you, I guarantee one of us are in one of those four categories here in this room today. Uh, one of us fit in there. And, and honestly, all of us need to change. All of us need to come to God and to and to. Uh, really allow our hearts to be softened. And so today I want to elaborate on that just a little bit because um, last week I kind of I told you about the bridge and uh, I kind of tol- told you how to cross over it. Um, but today I want to really get down to the nitty gritty uh, as, as, as the great prophet Nacho would say. Um, so let's go to Romans chapter 12. Uh, this is the classic passage. I've never actually uh, preached a sermon on this at City Chapel and so I'm looking forward to looking at this. Uh, The New King James Version from Romans 12, verse 1 um, says this. It says, I beseech you, uh, therefore, brethren. So we got King James language, verbiage here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what we mean by the cup of praise or the cup of Hillel, where you give yourself to God. You present your body as a living sacrifice. Now this, this version, this term living sacrifice, um, it's talking about an Old Testament uh, way of worship. And so in the Old Testament, you would come before God and instead of just singing songs, they did sing hymns, but instead of just singing songs, you would bring an offering. You would bring um, a goat or a sheep or something, and uh, you would bring that to God, and, and then they would, they would kill that goat, and they would strap it onto an altar, and they, would, and they would burn different parts of it. And it was a part of your worship. It was based because, because back in those days, um, goats and sheep, it was, they were an agricultural society, so that was like their money. That was, that was big money for them. And so they presented that to God as an act of worship. And, and, and that is what worship is. Uh, worship is where we, we give up something, where we lay down something, where we don't simply, uh, uh, David said, I won't give the Lord that, something that doesn't cost me anything. Um, so real worship is costly. It is a sacrifice. 
And here Paul is writing to the Roman church and he is drawing a parallel between that Old Testament version of worship and now the kind of worship that God is looking for, the kind of people that God is looking for. He's not looking for people that will bring their pets to him to kill them. He is looking for people who themselves will get on the altar themselves and be a living sacrifice. Uh, and, it's, and it's much harder. I think it's much harder to be a living sacrifice than a dead sacrifice uh, because when you're living and you're on the altar, you constantly want to kind of get off and parts of you jump off. But as A.W. Tozer said, the goal of life, A.W. Uh, Tozer said we should never be settled until all of us wor worships God, until yes. every part of us worships God. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that um, we're all at different places and stages in our walk here today. Some of you have never even really heard the Bible. You've never read the Bible. You really don't know who God is. And that's wonderful. That's awesome. Uh, we welcome you. Some of you have been around for a while. You've been in church for 30 years and uh, you think that you know it all. Uh, and that's good too. We love you. We welcome you. Uh, at, at any stage, um, the, the goal of life is that all of you would come to worship God, that there wouldn't be any part of you that uh, would worship yourself or would wor worship your career or would worship your spouse, but that all of you, and, 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 and it takes some time. I, I'm, I am what, I'm about 30, I'm 32 years in to knowing Jesus. And um, I got saved when I was six. And so I'm trying to do the math real quick. So I'm 32 years in to knowing Jesus. And there's still parts of me that need to learn how to worship God. There's still parts of me I've reserved for myself. Still parts of me I've reserved. And so, and so God, through the Holy Spirit, is constantly calling me. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, uh, that reasonable service means your reasonable act of worship. This is, this is your worship now. This worship is more than a song. Worship is when you present your body as a living sacrifice. And, and I just want to look at that first word, which you might not even know what that means. I beseech, beseech. Uh, that's, that's old King James version for um, beg. He says, I beg you. Now, what's interesting is, is, is as you, yeah, and so, so that's, what I'm here to, that's what I'm here to do today. Uh, I'm not really here to preach at you. I'm just here to beg you. I am, I am just like you. I'm in the same life that you're in. I, I have the same flesh that you have. I have the same struggles that you have. And, and, and so I, I have, I don't, even though I'm on a little, little tiny podium, I don't really, I'm not really any higher than you. Uh, and so I'm, I'm literally, I'm just here to beg you. And, I, and, I, and I, it's interesting because you look at the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter, the letter to the Roman church. And um, at the end of the letter, he mentions a bunch of names. And so uh, the early, a lot of the early church believed that, that Paul and Peter helped plant the church in Rome. Um, modern scholars disagree with that, but they do acknowledge Paul planted churches around the church at Rome so that he knew a lot of people there in Rome. So whether he physically, personally planted them or he was just simply a part of their planting, uh, he, the Apostle Paul shouldn't have to beg 
You're like, this, this seems a little strange to me, just his language. When you read the book of Romans, really the first 11 chapters, he's building this argument. He's building an argument, building and building. And then he comes to chapter 12, verse 1, which is the vulcrum of the entire book. It's the, it's the thing that the whole thing turns on. And he says, I, I beseech you. Uh, so he's, 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 he's lowering himself down to the level of a beggar. Uh, he, I mean, Paul's an apostle of God. He, he had uh, ascended to the third heaven one time. He saw things um, that, that he couldn't even tell people about because God told him not to tell anybody. I mean, Paul has some knowledge. He has some wisdom. He has some very deep understanding about the things of God. Uh, like, like, like scholars, we're still trying to figure out what he wrote to the book and to, 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 to the church in Rome. I mean, talk about somebody who, who could simply command them based on his wisdom, based on his knowledge, based on his apostolic anointing. He could just say, you know what, guys, look, here's the thing. You need to present your body as a living sacrifice. I'm telling you, like, just do it. You know, he could have went the whole Nike route, but he didn't. Like, it seems weird to me that the, that the Apostle Paul, one of the great fathers of the Christian faith, he's writing to a, to a church that he has personal relationship with. He could clearly tell them based on all that he knows, he could just command them to do it. Just do it, right? Just submit to God. Just give everything to God. I'm telling you, I know a lot more than you. I've been to the third heaven, you know, like just do it. But instead of that, you know, he, he doesn't say that. He doesn't take up his apostolic uh, office. He doesn't reference all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge and even the seven years he spent in the wilderness with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even go into all that or even the personal encounter he had with Jesus. Like on the road to Damascus, he doesn't even reference that. All that God has poured into him, he seems to shove that aside for a minute. And, 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 and being a pastor myself, I, I haven't actually met Jesus on the road. I haven't spent seven years of the Holy Spirit. I haven't planted, you know, bunches of churches throughout Asia Minor. I, 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 I haven't written any of the Bible, actually. I, I wrote a blog once, but I mean, I haven't like done any of this. But as I'm reading this, there is some level that I do, I can associate with them because I have planted a church and I have pastored some people. And, and, and sometimes I, I, I feel like that personal connection sometimes gives me authority to say, look, I, I know you, I know your struggle. I know what, like we've been down this road for the past couple of years, I've seen the cycle. And so let me just tell you, like, this is the best thing for you. Seriously, I know what's good for you. Just eat your vegetables. You know what I'm saying? Like, like just do it. Like just present your body as a living sacrifice. Seriously, your life would be so much better. Everything would work out. I know you because I have, I've personally labored with you. I've prayed over you. I've fasted for you. I've met with you. I've taken your phone call at 3 a.m. when you were drunk. You know what I mean? Like, like I've, I've been there for you. So I know what your struggle is as a pastor. I, I've, I've been there for many of you all. I've had a lot of personal meetings. And so sometimes I, I wonder like if Paul, maybe he, he didn't want to be, you know, big shot apostle to these people, but hey, he's been in their living rooms. He's dealt with their marriage issues. He's dealt with their kids' issues. He's dealt with their addictions. I mean, these are Romans who are coming out of paganism. He's dealt with all of that stuff. He's, he's helped walk them through. And so based on just simply his pastoral authority, I mean, he could just say, guys, look, I know what's good for you. Just do it. Just give yourself to God. But he doesn't. He says, I beg you. I beg you. And, and, I, and, I, and, and I, I think that's because every true preacher is really just a beggar. 
Because a beggar is somebody, you know, we see them on the side of the road. We see them in the corner of, of uh, Old Torf and 35. We see them in the corner of Manchac and Slaughter. We, 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 we see homeless people all the time begging here in Austin and throughout the U.S. A beggar is somebody who can't seem to get what they need on their own. They have a, they have a deficiency, so they have to ask for charity from somebody else. And, and, and I feel like that's ultimately, as powerful as Paul is, as pastoral as Paul is, the truth is he can't make anybody give themselves to God. Like, he, he's, he's, he's already figured that out. Maybe he's tried. <laughs> just do it, just do it, just do it, and nobody did it, you know? Maybe, maybe he's already gone down that road, and he's realized that, honestly, when he stands before people who have their own lives, who make their own decisions, who have their own bank accounts, who have their own marriages and their own family and their own, their own ambitions, their own dreams, their own desires, and he stands before them. He cannot simply by commanding them to do something, he, it doesn't work that way. And so every preacher of the gospel is really just a beggar, just begging people to do not something for him, because it doesn't help Paul at all if these people give themselves as a living sacrifice. It's entirely for them. This is, this is the interesting thing. It's like he's begging them for something that is for them. He's begging them for something that is for them. And so today, I'm not even really going to preach to you. I'm just going to beg uh, you a little bit. And honestly, hopefully every Sunday, I do a little bit of begging. Hopefully every Sunday, I'm just kind of pulling you a little bit and just, just begging you a little bit. Uh, because honestly, I can't make you drink of the fourth and final cup. I can't make you drink of the first cup. I can't, I can't actually do anything. Uh, in your life except stand and just tell you what God has to offer you and let you know of how awesome it is if you would actually give your life to him. And this is, this is, this is Paul's strategy. Look back in uh, the verse 12, 1. He says, I beg you, therefore, Therefore, I beg you, therefore. That word therefore is how scholars know that this is the, the turning point of the whole chapter of the whole book because, because when he says therefore, he means I have just written 11 chapters. And so based on these last 11 chapters, I now beg you to give yourself to God. But he, he summarizes these 11 chapters with the next uh, per, uh after the comma, the next little statement, by the mercies of God. Every beggar, every homeless person, they all have signs, right? And, and the, the sign is to help give you some motivation that when you're stopped at the stoplight and you see them, by the way, read their signs sometimes, every once in a while, you know, look them in the eye, acknowledge them, they're real people. And, and if you have something, help them out. So, you know, we, we believe in that. Uh, but, but, but they have signs usually to help with some kind of motivation, like, you know, I'm a Marine vet or something like that. So if, if you yourself have been in the military, you, you feel some compassion or something, or you respect the Marines, you say, okay, well, this, this is going to help encourage me to do, honestly, what we ought to be doing anyway, helping people. Uh, but it's like an extra motivation. Paul here is begging them to give themselves to God, to give their entire lives to God as a living sacrifice, which is, as he says, reasonable 
This is not unreasonable. God's not asking anything crazy from you. This is reasonable, but, but, but just to kind of back it up, he holds up a cardboard sign. He holds up a cardboard sign, and it is the mercies of God. This is the summary of the entire previous 11 chapters. This is what he wants you to get from the last 11 chapters. Now, obviously, Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 um, is massive in terms of doctrine and theology, and it's really, really deep, and so I'm not going to cover it all, but I, I am going to look at, I'm going to hold up some of those signs, actually, uh, for you today. I got, a, I, I got a few old-fashioned slides. We couldn't afford, our, our graphic designer went on strike this week, and so so, and so we had to just we had to just beg, you know what I'm saying? So so the first thing that I want to talk about from chapters, so basically I'm going to cover all 11 chapters in the next 29 minutes, all 11 chapters. He says he says he says I beg you by the mercies of God, and the first mercy that God that that Paul writes about in chapters one, two, and three is really God's patience, the mercy of God's. Patience. This is the mercy of his patience. We see it in chapter 1 when, when, when Paul establishes the sinfulness of man. That mankind is naturally and just because of our, our because of the fall, because of Adam, we're, we've inherited Adam's behavior. And so we all act really more like animals than we do humans naturally. And, and, and then he, he tells us in chapter 2, verse 4, he, he, he lets us know that he says, don't show contempt. Do you show contempt? for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And so some people might say, well, the world is so dark, it's so evil, there's so many bad things happening. Why doesn't God step in and do something? Right here. God is patient. And before you get too impatient, just remember that it was God's patience that led you here. It was God's patience. It's the fact that God didn't judge you the first time you messed up. That God didn't condemn you the first time you messed up. That God didn't come crashing in on you when the many times, because I know you guys only messed up once, but some of us, we made more than one bad decision, you know. And God had to be very patient. In fact, I think forbearance and long-suffering is the King James. Like he suffered long with us and he waited and waited and waited. And it was God's patience that was his first mercy. This is God's mercy to us, that he would, didn't judge us immediately, that he didn't condemn us immediately, but he, he waited for us to come back to him. Uh, last year, I preached on a message, uh, I, I, I called it Don't Miss Your Moment, and it was based on, based on the woman at the well. There's a script, there's a Bible story about this lady who goes to a well, and um, she meets Jesus there. But the backstory is Jesus was baptizing people about, I think it's about 15 miles away, and he said, okay, now we need to go to this little town in Samaria, and he traverses through the wilderness overnight. He shows up in the morning, and, and, and he shows up at the well. He shows up at the well where the woman is going to get water. Now, this lady is a special lady. She's had five different husbands, which means she's very hopeful. <laughs> she's full of hope. She, I mean, that's, you know, and now she's with a guy who doesn't love her enough to put a ring on her finger. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and it, because she's, she doesn't value herself very much. 
bottom line is she doesn't believe that she's worth it. That's why she's desperate just for anybody who will just pay her some attention. And so she shows up at the well in the middle of the day, right around noontime when nobody is normally getting water because it's too hot there. And she shows up and Jesus is there. And, and, and I don't know, it's just kind of funny to me. It's just, it's, it's, it just kind of makes me giggle how, how Jesus like went to the well, like Jesus is the water of life. And we find the well going and sitting next to the well. <laughs> like like, like the, 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 the water of life has been traveling all night through the wilderness and the Bible says that he was thirsty. That's crazy to me that, that the well of life became thirsty. Like God who created water to begin with, <laughs> who can make it come out of a rock or out of the sky or out of whatever. Like he's, he just like, he's thirsty. He didn't stop in the wilderness and get a drink. He himself has allowed himself to get thirsty. This is just crazy to me. And then he pulls up next to the well and, and, and the Bible says that he's just sitting there. He's sitting by the well. Specifically, he's sitting next to the well. And to me, this is such a beautiful picture of God. He sits by the well that you think you need. The well you actually need is sitting by the well you think you need. You know what I mean? Because she didn't think she needed Jesus. She didn't think she needed a heart transformation. She thought she was doing fine. She had her current guy that she was living with, and she was just coming to this other well to get a drink. And, 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 and that's what she came prepared with a jar. And she came ready and she's, she's all set. And it's just such a paradox how Jesus, the actual water of life himself, is sitting there looking completely parched. He's sunburned because he's been traveling through the desert. He, he, and, and he says, can you give me something to drink? It's like a complete role reversal. It's a, totally different because internally Jesus is completely full. Internally, she is completely empty. What he's doing is he is mirroring, mirroring herself. And when she walks up to the well, she sees herself like on the inside, like a few hours before when she was home wondering if this guy was ever going to marry her, like when she's been chasing man after man after man trying to get what she couldn't get because they didn't have what she needed. And so she, she, she sees him and she sees him as complete as a beggar. <laughs> and he's begging with her, could you give me something to drink? And she is prideful and she says, man, you know, I don't think we need to be, I don't, you don't help me. I don't help you. I'm not going to get you to be. She says, besides, you don't even have a bucket to lower down into the well. Right? Like you're not even prepared. At least I'm prepared for what I'm going to do today. It's crazy to me how, how we can be so jacked up at home and then judge other people who just look a little more jacked up than we do. It's crazy to me. But Jesus doesn't even mind. Like his humility is so deep that he makes himself thirsty to appear thirsty so that he can introduce her to what he actually has that she doesn't have. He comes and sits by the well we think we need because he's patient and he's waiting. He just waits. We don't know how long he waited there. I don't know how long God has been waiting. Sometimes God just pulls up at church, I think, just because it's the well you think you need. You know what I mean? Like, like a couple gets married and they say, we got to start going to church because that's what you do. 
or, or a couple has a child, we need to start going to church because we need to be anchored and, you know, we need something in our life. Or a marriage is falling apart, we need to start going to church so our marriage can be, and that's fine, but church is not the well that you need. It's the well you think you need. That's why you got up early and you came to because it's, it's what you think you need because you think the preacher's going to say something maybe that you'll feel something and that, that, that's all good. But Jesus, I think, sometimes comes to church just because people are coming to a well they think they need and he just sits right next to that well and he says, okay, I'm here too. I'm actually the well that you need. If all you get out of church is church, a sermon, and a song, you've totally missed the point. Our prayer is that you meet the actual water of life that can actually actually give you something internally that doesn't just help you feel a little bit better and teach your kids some good stories but actually he brings fullness into your life this is the patience of God though he just waits how long is God waiting for this lady I don't know but he just pulls up I mean God who lives outside of time never had to wait for anything he speaks and it happens he doesn't ever wait for anything because he's literally outside of time he doesn't, he doesn't wait for anything. He sees the end from the beginning because it's all the same to him because he's, he's not under the confines and the constraints of time. But he put himself into time and sat down and waited for somebody else. And how long has he waited for you and for me? as we mess around with these other husbands and try these other wells and constantly seeking these other things and he's waiting and he's waiting. His patience... Oh, the mercy of his patience, the mercy of his incredible patience that while we thought we had better things to do, that while we thought we had better options, while we thought there were greater things out there, he didn't leave his post. He knew where we were going to end up. And so he sat there and just waited for us to get to where we were going to go. He goes before us to wait on us. <laughs> like what mercy? This is just absolute mercy. He waits and he waits. And by the way, patience, we tell our kids, is waiting with a good attitude. So patience is not waiting, it's waiting with a good attitude. This is why, this is why it's kind of crazy, like when people say, don't ask God for patience. And I'm like, why, why not? And they say, well, because then God will make you, like he'll stick you in traffic in Austin, or like you'll get the long line in HEB, you know? so he can teach you patience. No, no, no. Like, like that's just teaching frustration. That's what that's teaching. That's just teaching anger management. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not, pa patience is not just where you wait, it's where you wait with a good attitude. Attitude can't be taught. You can't teach somebody attitude. Attitude is something that is, that is given, it's received. God gives you patience. So I encourage you, ask God for patience because it's not the ability to wait, it's the ability to wait with a good attitude. Ask God for an attitude adjustment. <laughs> ask God for an attitude change because, because the traffic's gonna happen on 35 whether you ask God for patience or not. HEB lines, they're only gonna have one person working uh, at, at, at 11 o'clock at night whether you ask God for patience or not. You know, I'm saying like that's just the way it's going to go but God can touch your heart and change your attitude and this is how God waits he doesn't wait the way your parents waited when you were late to get home because <laughs> they didn't have as much patience as God had like you know he's not sitting in the dark on the couch 
with the belt in his hand. You know, like that's not what he's doing. Like, but, but this is the way we think of God. Like he's, yeah, he's waiting. He's waiting to crush us. He's waiting to judge us. He's waiting for us to come back so, so he can prove that he was right and we were wrong. No, 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 no. He's waiting to show mercy to you. He's waiting to show mercy with a good attitude. And just to prove that, in, in Romans chapter 5, uh, 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 the writer of Romans, uh, Paul starts explaining a little more. He says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while he's waiting, he's working. While you're sinning, he's working on a way to get your sin undone, to get you back into relationship with him. So he's not just waiting, judging, angry, fuming, ready to crush you. He is waiting and preparing a way for your return before you even decide you want to go back. <laughs> and, and Jesus told a story about, a, about a, a kid who told his dad he wanted his inheritance now. And so the kid took the inheritance and he went off into a far country. He wasted it all. And his father was waiting. And the way I know his father was waiting is because when the kid finally decided to go home, it said that the, Jesus said while he was still a far ways off, his father saw him, jumped off the porch, and ran to meet him. This is how God waits on the edge of his seat, scanning the horizon, ready to bless you. And that is his mercy. It is, it is his mercy of his, of his patience, and it is the mercy of his preparation that he's working and scheming and preparing for your return through Jesus Christ, that Christ died for us before we repented of our sins, before we thought about repenting of our sins, while we were still entirely enjoying our sins and happy to mock him, happy to run from him. We were still spending, wasting our inheritance in the foreign country. We hadn't even figured out what it was to have come across hard times yet. And the older, see, in Jesus' story of the prodigal, you had the older son who stayed home. And he was offended that the younger son came back and had a party thrown for him. And when Jesus told the story, he was one telling us the father's heart, but he was also demonstrating his role that he was going to be a different older son. That the mercy of God wasn't just in the heart of the father, but it was also in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Son of God, that Jesus was preparing a way for our return as well. That Jesus actually cleared the way for the Father to run to us. That Jesus was able to clear the thing that was between God and us, mainly our sin and our enmity with God, which he says in Romans 5, that Jesus got rid of that. We were enemies of God, but because of the cross, because of Jesus Christ, because of our older brother, who is much better than the older brother of Judaism or religion, that the older brother of Jesus, that Jesus not only was, did he celebrate our return, but he prepared for our return. The mercy of God has both waited for us to return and prepared a way for us to return. And so based on this incredible mercy. Can I, can I beg you to give yourself to him? Can I beg you to let all of you worship him? To let all of you worship, to let your guard down, to stop feeling like you have to defend yourself, to stop feeling like you have to provide for yourself, to stop feeling like you have to forgive yourself. I'm just struggling to forgive myself. Well, don't. <laughs> 
<laughs> don't, like, okay, you don't forgive yourself. Go ahead, just, just hold it against yourself forever because it's already been forgiven by somebody else who's much greater than yourself. And the word of God is much greater than your word. And if your father forgives you, and if your father runs out to meet you, see, he, he ran out to meet him, not because he was afraid he didn't know the path back, but because he didn't want him to walk back by himself. Because all the townspeople were watching, they were wondering what the father's response was going to be. So he let the whole world, the whole town know what his response was by going out and walking back with his son. So that all the shame that his son was bearing was also his shame. So that all the guilt his son was carrying was also his guilt. He said, you know what, I'll walk with you. You, you, you you'll, you'll have to suffer some consequences of what you did, but you're not going to suffer them alone. I am walking hand in hand with you all the way back to the father's house and this is what he does he meets us on the road of life before we even get to the gates of heaven and he says i will walk with you in your shame i will put a robe on you a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet preparing you for the celebration of heaven but until we get there i will be your righteousness i will be your peace i will be your strength i will be your joy i will trump what you think about yourself i will let you know who you are you are my son. You are my child. This is the mercy of God. This is the mercy of God. And, it, and, it's, the pride, and it's our own pride that kind of, after he puts that robe on us, we kind of try to get it off a little bit. Well, I'm not, I'm not worthy. And I, just, I just don't feel worthy. I don't think I'm worthy. Exactly. It's just whining. It's just straight up. Nobody asks you what you think. Nobody asks wonder your opinion on this. He says that he is like, like this, this, the, it's, it's your size. The shoes fit you. The ring fits you. The robe fits you. Obviously, he's been working on it for a while. Just take what he's got for you, put it on, and walk alongside him. You're not worthy. You're never going to be worthy. It's fine. It's fine. You don't have to be. It's his choice. I, I, I think it's in Romans 8 where he says, I will have mercy on whom I may have mercy. Well, who may he have mercy on? Anybody who calls on him. And so if you start walking toward the Father's house, you qualify for this immense mercy. It's yours. It's yours. You don't, you don't, like you won the lottery and you didn't even buy a ticket. It's fine. <laughs> You didn't have to buy a ticket because your father wants to bless you. He wants you home and his mercy, his mercy, it was preparing a way for you. But not only is it preparing for you, uh, it's, it, God's mercy is also seen in his patience. But finally, it's seen in, in, in his proposal. And so Romans chapter 7 starts with an interesting uh, dialogue here. And uh, I, I know many times people read Romans chapter 7 and uh, Paul talks about how the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he does. But this is, this is the mercy of God, that God doesn't leave you where he found you. And this, is, and this is how, right here, look. It says, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And, and, and now he starts talking about a woman, and this is with regard to the law. For the woman who has a husband, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, yeah, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just go. Uh, this is why I got an actual, 
Bible. This is awesome. Uh, we're, it's, it's there now, isn't it? It's all good. For I speak that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband. Just FYI, that is the way God made it. <laughs> Just throw that out there, Austin. As long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives and she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. Right, she's cheating on him. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, therefore, like, so, so here's, here's this marriage picture. Therefore, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. So when Christ died, he crucified this, the way of relating to God through works, through righteousness of your own, that you may be married to another, primarily to him, to Jesus, who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. So this is God's proposal to you. <laughs> he, his, his proposal is a proposal of marriage, which is why I say every part of us must come to a place where we worship God because God wants all of us. He wants every part of my heart. He wants every part of my being. And so, so he's liking this relationship to the most intimate relationship known to man, the, the relationship of marriage. And see, when, when God found us, we were married to somebody else. We were married to our, our career. We were married. <laughs> this is not a good time to look around or say amen, Poppy. This is, this is, this could get... This could get real awkward. This could get real awkward real quick. She's agreeing, though. I mean, it's true. We were married to another guy. We, we were, I was six years old when God, I'll, I'll tell you me. I was married to my ability to do what was right. That's what I was married to. And if I did what was right, then I was a good person. If I didn't do what was right, I was a bad person. When I grew up in my home, uh, there was, there was the, the, the mountain of blessing and the mountain of cursing, and there was a teeny tiny little valley of decision in between. It was a very small valley. It was not a wide valley. It was a small valley. You were either, you were basically on one side of the mountain or the other. You step across, the valley was like a little, little corner. It was more of a crease, really, in the land. There was like the, you, you were either in the doghouse or you were in the good book. So this is, this, there was no, I mean, you know, and so, but it was all based on what you did. It was all based on how you behaved. And oftentimes for children, it is this way. But when I met Jesus, I watched the Willie George or Gospel Bill video where, Jesus, where, where he talked, he had this balloon. He talked about how sin could come into our lives and how you can't get it out once it's in there. And this, I'm, this, I'm, I'm six years old and it makes sense to me. He says, but Jesus came to take it out. In other words, Jesus came to take you from the mountain of cursing to the mountain of blessing, not based on what you could do or perform or how you could clean yourself up, but based on his blood and his power and his ability. Because here's the deal. When you're married to this idea of good works makes you a good person, when you're married to that, boy, he is not a nice husband. Because you can do 99 things right, but you get one thing wrong, and that's what you hear about. That's what the voice in your head tells you about. That's what the voice inside of you keeps pointing out. Well, there's not one thing you did. You just can't do anything. I got 99 things right, one thing wrong, and that's what it focuses on. And it never, it always tells you what to do, but never tells you how to do it and never helps you do it. 
<laughs> this is a bad marriage, by the way. I'm describing, this is not a good marriage, it's a bad marriage, where the husband just simply dictates to the, to the wife what she ought to be doing, what she, how she ought to be dressing, what she ought to be thinking, and, 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 and basically just, just shows, her, shows her the way to be this person that he thinks is the best person, but never empowers her or enables her to do it. But when we, when we, when we die to that person, when that person is crucified on the cross, we get to marry Jesus. And when we're married to Jesus, it's not that he wants, and that's not that he lets us go off and cheat with a whole bunch of other people, okay? That's not what he does. But instead, he empowers us to be faithful to him. He empowers us. He gives us the ability. There's not, he never asks us to do anything that, number one, he hasn't done himself. So when he says, I beg you to present your body as a living sacrifice, he's standing before you with nail scars in his hands. He says, I beg you to present your body as a living sacrifice like I did. He never asks you to do anything that first of all, he hasn't already done. And secondly, that he's not ready to give you the power to do. He says, I beg you by the mercies of God, that, that Greek word dia, it means, it means by, like because of the mercies of God, but also it means through the mercies of God. So it is because of his mercy and through his mercy that we give ourselves totally to him. He always reminds us of our value. He always speaks to our worth. He always encourages us. He always tells us uh, what he sees in us that we don't even see in ourselves. And this is his proposal. His proposal is to walk with us so that by the time we get, I think it's chapter eight in verse 35, it says, who shall separate us? This is what it means to be married to Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Uh, it, it, there's no, when, when, when you're married to him, you don't have to be concerned about his love failing you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that's, that's a thing, or distress, that's a thing, or persecution, that's a thing, famine, that's when you don't have enough, poverty or nakedness, that's when you can't even clothe yourself, you, you're so poor or peril as danger or sore, that's, that's physical harm. Verse 37 says, yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. To be more than a conqueror means to overcome something and then enslave something. So whatever the enemy brings against you, whether it's poverty or tribulation or distress or persecution, whatever the enemy brings against you, it, 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 that in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. So Jesus doesn't save us out of all these things, but within these things, he walks with us. And actually whatever the enemy brings to break us, he borrows to bless us. He uses these things. He overcomes them and then he uses them in our lives for his glory and for our good. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him, through Jesus. He's there to empower us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, he just covers it all, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the proposal that he's giving to us, this proposal of a secure place with him. You don't have to wonder 
where you stand with him. You don't have to wonder what he thinks about you. You don't have to wonder uh, how he feels towards you, that his love is consistent, his faithful. But all you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is come forward before him to lay down on the altar and to stay on that altar, to present your body. I, I, I just wonder, as we close today, does anybody want to present their body as a living sacrifice to God? If you want to present your body, why don't you just raise your hands with me? Let's just start off by presenting our hands. Just, 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 just presenting. That's present. That's to put forth, to put in front of. Lord, we, we present our hands to you. Our hands, we should probably put our phones up too. Our, our hands... <laughs> that send text messages, that send... Lord, we present our hands to you. We won't, we, won't, we won't type anything that you don't want us to type. We just, we give our hands to you. The hands also represent our work. This is our daily job. Whatever our career is, whatever our work is, Lord, we give our hands to you. We work with our hands. We, we, we labor with our hands. We build things with our hands. Lord, whatever we're building, we submit it to you. We give it to you. Lord, we submit our, our head to you and our mind. This is where we often lose the battle. We give you our mind. We ask for you to take captive every thought that is against the word of God, that is against the knowledge of Christ, what we know to be true about the mercies of God. We ask for you to help us take captive every one of those thoughts. We, we submit our mind, we submit our eyes to you, Lord. We submit our eyes to stay focused on you, to read your word. We submit our mouth to you. <laughs> Only, oh, we've received mercy, Lord, let us speak mercy. It's such hypocrisy to receive mercy and then speak judgment. Lord, we've let mercy motivate mercy. Let mercy in, in us motivate mercy from us, that others would receive mercy in accordance with the mercy we've received. Let us speak mercy to people. Let us speak forgiveness of sins. Let us speak hope. Let us speak life into people. Lord, we give our ears to you. We're, we're gonna listen for your spirit. We're gonna listen for your, your voice. We're going to tune out other voices. We're going to block other voices. We're going to tune into your voice. Oh, we give our, our legs and our feet to you. We're going to go only where you want us to go. We're not going to step into situations that you don't want us stepping into. Maybe other people can, but, but you have better things for us, greater things for us. And so we choose for you to direct our path, Lord. Let, let your light, let your word direct our path. We submit our bodies, submit our sex life to you. We won't be dictated and governed by what this culture says. We'll be dictated by what your word says. We'll choose. We, we're not going off of our conscience. We're going off of your word. Because <laughs> your word is greater than our conscience. And so we ask for you to direct us, for you to guide us. We submit to you. Lord, we pray that you would have all of us, every part. And finally, Lord, we give you our heart, which is our desires. 
We ask for you to change our attitudes. We ask for you to change our desires. We can't do that on our own. This is something only you can do. Take out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. We submit to you. Lord, we ask for you to start shining your spotlight in different areas. Start shining spotlight on areas that we haven't put on the altar, pieces of us, parts of us that have remained safe and hidden and guarded from the, from the sovereignty and the mercy of God because we were too afraid to expose ourselves too much to you. But based on your incredible mercy, Lord, our hearts burn with a desire to have all of you and for you to have all of us. Just lay it before you. We ask for you to consume <laughs> for you to take this acceptable offering. This is an acceptable offering. You accept it, you receive it. You don't turn it away. You don't turn it down. You don't stub your nose up at it. You accept this offering. <laughs> you accept this kind of worship. Thank you for the immense acceptance we've found in your arms. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen, amen. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to give the Lord a hand clap of prayer.